0: After his baptism, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning, and we trust that you are here with us. May my words be your words, and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The story that we have before us this morning, specifically chosen to get us off on the right foot as we begin our long journey through Lent, this story is actually telling two stories. And in this way, the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is actually a perfect example of something that the Bible does all the time. It tells one story on the surface, the thing that is happening in the certain place, in the certain time, and to the certain people. But it is also telling its grand story, the overarching narrative of the redemption of the world In Jesus Christ. So let's get ourselves situated in this story. Luke opens his gospel with the birth of John the Baptist and prophecies about the coming birth of Jesus. That's in Luke chapter one. In chapter two, Jesus is actually born. The angels announce it to the shepherds. And then the boy Jesus is presented at the temple. In chapter three, and adult John the Baptist comes back onto the scene to prepare the way for the public ministry of Jesus. And then, of course, actually baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. And then chapter 3 ends with Luke giving us Jesus' genealogy. He takes the time to note the fathers of all 77 generations, all the way back to Adam, who is, Luke says, the son of God. and then. We have what we read from Luke chapter four this morning, immediately following this genealogy, this great list of names running down the generations from God himself to his son Jesus. And then Luke writes after his baptism, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit in the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. So what I'd like to do this morning is to spend some time talking about these two stories that are happening here. One on the surface and one on a grand scale. Now in this particular story in which Jesus is tempted three times by Satan immediately after his baptism and just before embarking on his public ministry, here the ground level story is a pretty simple one. Jesus Resists the temptations of Satan and thereby shows us the path by which to do the same. So, to put it a little awkwardly, Jesus is winning and showing us how to win too. I feel like 2011 Charlie Sheen. What a glorious summer that was. Winning! Some people in here know what I'm talking about. The cool ones know. So, That's what's happening on the surface. Jesus winning and showing us how to win too. Resisting temptation and showing us how we might resist it too. But we're going to see also that this story is doing much more than that. We're going to see that it's operating on a cosmic level too. With an eternal framework, this story has nothing less then the redemption of the world in mind. This story of Jesus' temptation is also a drama played out on a grand scale. And in that story, Jesus wins and then does way more than just show us how to win too. In that story, Jesus wins and then gives his victory to us. So let's begin. Temptation number one. Jesus is in the desert for 40 days, and at the end of that time, Luke notes that he is famished. And just then, when food must be what he wants more than anything else, Satan appears and suggests that if he were really the Son of God, he could command a stone to turn into a loaf of bread. And in response, Jesus quotes the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8 to be precise, And reminds Satan that one does not live by bread alone. Now, Jesus here is, from the start, reliant on God's word, answering, as we'll see, all three of these temptations with references to what God has said in the scriptures. So, here we have our first winning strategy read your Bible. Know your Bible. Rely on your Bible. It is the very word of God. If you ever find yourself, like so many of us do, wishing that God would speak to you, open your bedside drawer and let him do just that. And if you don't have a Bible in your bedside drawer, put one there. Temptations will come, and Jesus shows us the way to deal with them. Immerse yourself In God's word, this is how we will live. Having been defeated once, Satan tries again. He offers to give Jesus everything in the world, every kingdom and all authority over it. If Jesus will simply bow down and worship him. And again, Jesus responds with God's word. This time from Deuteronomy 6. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Isn't this temptation reminiscent of Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve? Eat the fruit, the serpent whispered. You will be like God. This particular temptation, I think, is a prevalent one. In our age, I will give you all power and authority. We... Fallen humans are addicted to power and authority. We think that having it will allow us to decide right and wrong. To bend the world to our wills. To make things right for us. But again, Jesus shows us a better way. Turn to the real God, he says. Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. You don't get to or have to bear the weight of authority. God alone reigns. He made the world. He set the planets on their courses, and he divides right from wrong. He is almighty and worthy of honor and praise. So when temptation comes, turn to God in worship. I have a friend who would say, Just go to church. I couldn't find an attribution for the quote online, but someone once said, go to church every week when you want to and when you don't. Especially when you don't. So another winning strategy to resist temptation. Go to church. Finally, Satan decides to try quoting the Bible back to Jesus. He takes him to Jerusalem, places him on the pinnacle of the temple, and then kind of quotes Psalm 91. If you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Now, it may not surprise you to find out that Satan doesn't quote the psalm entirely accurately. He doesn't do a terrible job, just sort of skipping a phrase here and there, but his major deceit is in stopping where he does. If he had quoted Jesus just one additional verse, he would have found himself saying, On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Satan conveniently leaves out the part that would remind Jesus of what he most certainly had not forgotten. That he was the one who would crush the serpent's head. That that was exactly what he had come to do. Satan leaves out the part that doesn't suit him. Now... If the worship of idols and the worship of power and authority are one hallmark of our age, certainly misusing the Bible is another. Making ourselves the interpreters instead of God himself. Remember Hebrews, that the word itself is living and active, sharper than a sword, dividing bone from marrow. The Bible, the word of God, is the universal interpreter. When your life is troublesome, read the Bible. When you have trouble understanding a biblical text, read more Bible. Certainly read the next verse like Satan didn't do, but then keep going. Read and read and read. Trust God to interpret his word to you. And Jesus' answer to Satan undergirds that idea. It is said Do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Again, from Deuteronomy 6, Jesus interprets the Bible with the Bible. And here is our third winning strategy. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. Don't make yourself the interpreter, putting God under the microscope. Let God be God and trust what he has said. So we have our cumulative winning strategy, right? How to beat back temptation. Immerse yourself in God's word. Go to church. Let God be God. Trust him. Such is Jesus's strategy in the face of temptation. And it should be ours as well. But that's just what's happening on the surface. I told you that this story was doing much more than that, and it is. And to see it, we're going to have to pull back from this specific story a little bit, sort of zoom out to see the bigger story going on. Because when we do, we'll see that Luke has dropped several big clues into his text to help us see the overarching narrative. To help us connect to the grand story, the eternal framework, the drama unfolding around the redemption of the world. So let's look just quickly at some of the context that Luke gives us. First of all, remember that Luke introduces Jesus exhaustively, right? He begins by previewing his birth, then tells the story of his birth. Then previews his ministry via John the Baptist and then shows him baptized and he's still not done. He then, just before sending him out into ministry, painstakingly lists all 77 generations between Jesus and God. What is Luke doing? Why do we need to know this information? Well, it's going to sound simple to your ears, but it is an important connection that Luke wants you to see. Luke wants to be sure that you know that Jesus is God's son. So Jesus is introduced with the whole history of the nation of Israel, from God and Adam to Joseph and Jesus with every father and father's father in between. Because Luke wants to make sure you know that in what's just about to happen, Jesus will now stand in for Israel. See, at several points in the Old Testament, especially in regard to Israel's captivity in and rescue from Egypt, God actually calls Israel, the whole nation, his son. For example, in Exodus chapter 4, God tells Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. So all of Israel is referred to as the son of God. And now Luke is taking that whole people, the whole nation, and says, Jesus will now stand. For them. This 77 step genealogy is here to help us see that Jesus is Israel in microcosm, in one man. And all of this, of course, on the heels of Jesus' baptism, at which God clearly identifies Jesus as his son. And Luke, of course, will come back to this again at the Mount of Transfiguration, as we just read last week. This is my son, in both cases, at the baptism and on the mountain. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is now standing in for Israel as the son of God. Why is Luke so intent on making this connection? It is so that he can draw a parallel for us but a parallel with a different outcome. Jesus is going to be Israel, but Jesus will succeed where Israel failed. Luke will show Jesus being faithful where Israel was faithless. And we already looked at Jesus' three rebuttals to Satan's temptations, but don't overlook their source. Jesus is quoting From Deuteronomy 6 to 8, which is all about Israel's time in the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt. This connection that Luke is making is supposed to overwhelm us. He is making it as clear as he can. Israel is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. Israel is baptized in the crossing of the Red Sea. Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan. Israel is tested in the wilderness. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. But where Israel failed, Jesus will emerge victorious. Good news for sinful people. Two stories, with one overwhelming the other. Even though Jesus' successful contest with Satan serves as a good and righteous example for us, a winning strategy for resisting temptation. Immerse yourself in God's word. Go to church. Let God be God. Trust him. Don't live by bread alone, but rely on the word. Worship God alone, not any self or world-made idol. And don't put God to the test. But instead, trust, have faith in his promises, even though Jesus ought to be emulated here. As always, the promise outshines the commandment. What's also going on? This cosmic story, the grand drama, the eternal framework is even more important than this winning strategy. And it's The story that is the good news for sinners like you and me. Good news for those of us who, like the Israelites, fail to live up to God's standard. Who falter in the face of temptation. We need more than a winning strategy. We need the actual winner. And that's just what we get In Jesus Christ. In the story of his temptation at the hands of Satan, Jesus is doing more than winning and showing you how to win, too. Jesus is winning and then giving his victory to you. Jesus is in the face of these temptations succeeding for you. He is standing in the place of Israel, the Son of God, tempted in the wilderness. He is standing in the place of Israel, standing in the place of all humanity, and he is standing in the place of desperate individual sinners like you. In the same way that Jesus' faithfulness in his wilderness stood in for Israel's unfaithfulness in theirs his righteousness now stands in for your unrighteousness on the cross you receive as a free gift jesus's own righteousness the very righteousness he exhibited in the wilderness with satan he knows that bread alone won't satisfy and he is willing and able to rely solely on the word of God for his sustenance. He worships only God with every fiber of his being, knowing that all self or world made idols are nothing less than the spawn of Satan. And finally, he never puts God to the test. He completely trusts his loving father's promises. And on the cross, all of that faithfulness, all of his faithfulness becomes yours. Where you fail, he succeeds. Your failure becomes his, his victory, yours. This is a crucial part of what Jesus came to earth to accomplish since Adam and Eve in the garden, we humans have succumbed to temptation, the temptation to decide for ourselves, the temptation to act as God's, the temptation to go it on our own. So Jesus came to defeat the tempter himself. His ministry began in victory over Satan in the desert. It ended in victory over Satan and sin and death itself in the grave. This victory is won in your place and on your behalf. Jesus stands in for you, defeating Satan and satisfying the wrath of a holy God, making payment for sin and restoring your relationship with your creator. And it's done. The battle is over. He won. And then Jesus takes all of his winning and he gives it for free to you. You, a sinner made whole by his victory now and forever. Amen.